Amen. Please be seated. We are taking a, a brief pause from our exposition of Isaiah for these four weeks of Advent, where I will bring four different messages that relate to the Advent candle readings. And today is about the prophets, the prophets of Advent, then the, the place uh, where this prophecy finally found its fulfillment in Bethlehem. That's next week. And then the shepherds and then the angels will be part of the focus. They'll be different in their approach. Uh, but this morning, because there's so much in Scripture that forecasts, foretells the coming of Christ, I want to spend this time uh, looking at the prophets of Advent. As mentioned by Mike when he read from that uh, incredible passage in Isaiah chapter 9, but all of Isaiah is like this, and many other prophets in the Old Testament. It is hard for us to relate with something that was written so long ago, and then considering it being written so long ago, forecasting something that happened so far in the future. Yet it is encouraging when you walk through it. Now, when you think of people who are reliable to you, they are people who say they will do something and then they do it. We hold people like that in high regard. But our God, in every promise he ever made over the centuries, always kept with exact detail the, the very thing he said he would do. So we should be impressed with God in a way that brings him true glory. And I hope that this will be the case as we walk through some passages together. Now, first I will read from Genesis chapter 3. I picked this passage to begin because it's the oldest prophecy in Scripture about the coming of Christ. We won't obviously cover all the different prophecies, but I want to highlight some of the major ones. Because when you study or peruse the prophets you learn very quickly some answers, some answers to important questions. Like, first of all, why did Christ come? Why did Jesus come? Uh, no rational person doubts Christ came. Uh, history shows he came. But why did he come? And then how did he come? What was the manner in which he came? And then finally, uh, when did he come? And that's a question we'll see completed more next week, but we'll begin by reading some of the prophets, to recognize when he came. First, though, I will read this ancient prophecy penned by Moses around 1440 B.C., but it's recording words that happened thousands of years before Moses even. As ancient as ancient gets, the early words of the book of Genesis. This is God's holy and inspired word, and therefore it's inerrant. It's infallible. We can trust it completely. We'll start by reading verse 8 of Genesis chapter 3, and I'll read to that, that verse 15, which gives us this prophecy. Hear the word of the Lord. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. 
On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are so grateful for uh, the details of your word. We are so grateful for the testimony of your word. And we are grateful for this season of reflection upon what your word reveals concerning our Savior Jesus and his coming. Very simply, Lord, we see that he came to save us from our sins. As we scan some of the, the major messianic prophecies in Scripture, please encourage us with the accuracy and the trustworthiness of your word and the faithfulness of your loving actions toward us in Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen. Where could we begin? There are so many foretellings in the Old Testament. 39 books in the Old Testament written over the period of centuries forecasting, foretelling Jesus' coming. And most of these authors did not know each other. Uh, God, by His Spirit, uh, gave His will to these prophets to write His will. In fact, I want to start with a passage and then I'll end with a passage to remind you of the power of that which we study. The Apostle Peter says in his second epistle, first chapter, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. We know this is true because none of these predictive uh, elements could possibly come true in their detail except for God gave his will, his insight, his truth, the future to these prophets. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful description of the process of inspiration. When we say the inspiration of Scripture, we don't mean that the Bible tells a story that inspires us. That may be true, but that's not what we mean by inspiration. We mean what Timothy says. It was God breathed. And this is the description of how he breathed it. He, by his Holy Spirit, carried certain men along so that they could speak God's will. And he would therefore keep that word free from error. And we can trust it. This is prophecy. This is the telling of God's will. And we have it throughout the scriptures. Especially the Old Testament predicting and forecasting and foretelling, foreshadowing the coming of Messiah. This period of time that we, we, we contemplate this in Advent is a special time for sure to become reacquainted with the depth of our faith. All of us should be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. Yes, Jesus died for my sins. I believe in this and I'm saved. But as believers, let's know the roots of what that means, where it comes from. It just wasn't dreamed up. It wasn't like things went wrong and God said, well, I'll send Jesus. No, we have the plan from eternity past. In fact, the two hymns, the two second hymns we sing are some of the greatest in the history of the church accenting fulfilled prophecy, the prophets of Advent. And so that's why we sing them at this time, and I think you'll find them to be a great joy to you. Now, why are the prophets of Advent, the prophets of Scripture, so important for us as we contemplate why Christ came, how he came, and when he came. Well, remember studying Isaiah chapter 41. One of the ways the prophet challenges both Israel and the nations around them, he challenges them about their false gods, all these false hopes they have, these idols they have erected. He says, okay, if those are gods and I'm God too, then those gods can do what God does. 
God can predict the future. God can tell you the truth about the past, and he can tell you what's to come. And so he challenges them in Isaiah 41 by saying, let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. If something is really God, it can tell you the future. Because God controls all things, and the future is as certain to him as the past was. And so Isaiah challenges us, if we think there's some other God, to think again. Because can those gods, have those gods predicted anything like our God has, and our God has proven? Author Frank Williams, I think, says it very well. It's provocative, but it's true. He says, arguably, the most compelling of evidences demonstrating that the Bible is the Word of God is its unswerving ability to accurately predict future events, often in minute details. Specific prophecies are conspicuously absent from the other religious books of other religions, up to 26 of them that we can think of, including the Quran, the Book of Mormon, the Hindu Vedas, and the Buddhist, Buddhistic writings. All of these lack the kind of prophecies. They don't even attempt to prophesy the way that the Old Testament authors do over and over and over, century after century. You are aware of the great wonder of Advent and Christmas and how that it is tied to the incredible volume of fulfilled prophecies found in Scripture. In the Old Testament, there are at least ten prophets I'll refer to in brief. Uh, there are more than, th- than these who speak about Messiah's coming, but ten in minute detail. Detail that you just could not make up after the f- even after the fact you'd have trouble coming up with this kind of detail. In all cases, they make their predictions centuries before Jesus actually comes. Really, when I think of Advent, for the most part, of all the things, to put it simply, it's a season of wow. I mean, I cannot imagine all that God would have to have orchestrated to make it all happen, but he clearly did. Why did Christ come? How did he come? When did he come? In answering these questions, I'll reference several of the Old Testament voices and then even look at a few of the New Testament prophetic voices. You know, the apostles had the same gift of the prophets. They're just the other side of Jesus' advent. It's the same gift of the Spirit that allows them to know God's will and pen it to speak it. And it's not always just related to telling the future. It's, that's foretelling. It's foretelling the truth, expressing what is God's will. Now, first, let's consider why did Christ come as it's laid out by the prophets. And we'll use as our primary text here, Genesis 3. Moses writing, penning the words that were spoken by God right after man fell into sin. Now, remember that prophecy, the gift of prophecy, And Moses is the paradigm of prophecy in the Old Testament. The gift of prophecy was the ability to declare truth received directly from God. It's truth obtained by special revelation. The Spirit has to give it. There is general or normal revelation we know just because of creation. We can see that a God had to have made this. A rational person will surmise when they look at a tree or they look at an animal or they look at the mountains, they look at creation, that something had to create this. It takes an act of disbelief and almost disregard to say otherwise. But that's not enough to know God. So he gives special revelation through the prophets that we might know him. The prophets were mouthpieces of God, speaking his word to their world regarding either past, present, or future truth. 
The prophets were men of inspired utterance in this regard. And Genesis is the book of beginnings, the first five books written by the prophet Moses. He offers the picture for all the prophets who follow. And the greatest prophet, the greater prophet, Jesus himself, even follows the model that Moses sets. If you look at the passage that's on the outline, you'll see why Jesus came. Mankind had fallen into sin. God told man not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the serpent tricked Eve and tripped ultimately Adam as well, who followed Eve, to eat, and they fell into sin. And we must remember what God said explicitly. He said, if you eat, you will surely die. He doesn't say this is going to hurt you. This is going to hurt you and you're going to be maimed or injured or ill. It says, you will surely die. Yet when they take, we don't see them drop dead. Because they're a body and they're a soul. And their soul died when they partook, when they sinned. And they were separated, estranged from God. This is why Christ had to come. We'll see more about this. But they died spiritually and their outward bodies slowly followed suit. And that's true for every human being who's ever lived since. That's why David says, I was conceived in iniquity. Um, We are born in sin. Um, We are sinners from day one. Um, We are estranged from God because we are in the first Adam. With Adam, all men fell. All women fell. We are in sin, separated, estranged from God, a dividing wall of separation between us and God. There could not be a worse dilemma. And it's not just we go on our own. We're under his wrath as a result. We're under his anger. And we feel that anger at times. Hopefully, as God has drawn you to himself, you recognize where you were under his angry gaze. And it's only in Christ that we have that relieved. We can still recognize what it was like, but we are relieved because we are no longer under that first Adam. In verse 15 of chapter 3, we see what God will do in sending Messiah. Now, if we only had Genesis 3, verse 15, you could argue it'd be hard to picture out the gospel just out of this verse. But thankfully, we have the whole of the scriptures that really play out what is started here in Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity, this is God speaking now to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between the serpent and the woman, between your seed and her seed, or your offspring and her offspring, singular here, he, the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What we have here is set up two peoples, the people of the serpent and the people born of the offspring of the woman who we know to be Jesus. He, Jesus, will bruise the serpent's head and you shall bruise his heel. We come to understand as this unfolds in Scripture that this is a picture of Jesus paying on the cross for the sins that were committed through Adam and Eve. Jesus will destroy the devil and his work. He will bruise his head, or it says in the old versions, he will crush your head. But the serpent will bruise his heel. Now, think of how this looks in illustration. If you were to try to kill a snake, you would step on its head if you had nothing else. Because that's the way it would kill it. Even though it may have a long body, you know that by killing the head, it's dead. But when you go to step on that head, yes, you're going to deliver a mortal wound. 
It may bite you in the heel and hurt you, but it won't kill you. Not in the ultimate sense. And this is the picture of what God would do to rectify the sin problem. Why did Christ come? Because we have a massive, massive sin problem. I cannot understate how bad the problem of spiritual death is. But God says immediately upon the heels of this happening that he will send a seed from the woman who will crush the head of the serpent but will be harmed in so doing. And this begins, you might say, the whole story of what unfolds in Scripture through the prophets. Why did Christ come? Because we are estranged from God. We are separated from him. I love what our confession says in summarizing the dilemma. Because there's so many passages. Where would I begin? The confession does a great job of taking the sum total of all those passages and giving us these these pithy statements. It states, By this sin, they, Adam and Eve, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. That's tough for people today to hear. You're dead in sin. What do you mean? I don't feel dead, and I'm a spiritual person. Uh, But their enmity against God evidences that they are dead spiritually. And there really aren't all these categories of people. Um, It's just you're either dead in sin or you're alive in Christ. You're dead in old Adam or you're alive in Jesus, the second Adam. It is that simple. But people think they're alive, and they think generally people are okay. And when you talk to the average person, they'll say, you know what, if left to man's own uh, device, he'll eventually, you know, pick the right thing. You know, government's the problem, or dictators are the problem, or these companies are the problem. And they point out, but people, if they were just left on their own, the problem is all those entities are made up by what? People. It's the biggest lie ever that man is good. That man is basically good. And what a joke for evidence. What a joke that man is pretty good. I mean, there's nothing about mankind that would make you think, boy, we're getting better as people. But people keep repeating it. They keep putting in movies, keep putting in shows, keep, their presupposition keeps saying it. Man's pretty good. Man's okay. Man's okay. They're not okay. That's our problem, and that's why Christ came, because we're not okay. That's exactly the point. It says further in our confession, they being the root of all mankind, again, Adam and Eve, the guilt of this sin was imputed or credited. And the same death and sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, that's us, descending from them by ordinary generation. Just by birth, we are uh, in Adam and Eve. And until we're in Christ, we're in Adam. From this original corruption, the confession continues, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. Our state of deadness produces sin. That's what we produce. That's what we are. We're children of wrath. That's our problem. That's why Christ had to come, and that's the forecast that we have before us. And the reason he comes is to save us from our sins. In Matthew chapter 1, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which means salvation, or Joshua, for he will save his people from their sins. And why will he do this? He will do this to save us, yes, but he will do this ultimately to bring glory to himself that may not have otherwise been on display, but by through salvation, the salvation of sinners who cannot save themselves apart from him saving for us. Come to Bethlehem and see. Him whose birth the angels sing. Come adore on bended knee. Christ the Lord, the newborn king. Why? Why do we celebrate this 
this action of God to save us. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest for this thing he does. We are the beneficiaries of this work, this, this aspect of his will that he has come to pass. Why did Christ come? To save us from our sins because we're estranged. How did Christ come? This is where the bulk of what the prophets say uh, give us revelation. It's probably the most vivid detail from the prophets. How did Christ come? Now, the passage we started with from Genesis. The seed of the woman would come. So we are given insight that the Messiah, the one who will crush the head of the serpent, will be a man. The sin was committed in Adam, a man, and so redemption had to be paid by a man. But that man had to be kept free from the corruptions of the original Adam. We get even that much insight already in Genesis. But Job, who actually is a man of ancient, ancient heritage. Job probably lived during the time of of Abraham, 2,200 years before Christ. And Job says, I know my Redeemer lives. At the last, he will stand upon the earth. A personage. Uh, His Redeemer will be a man, will be a person. Later in prophecy, the prophet Samuel, writing around 1,100 years before Christ. I mention these dates because it puts into perspective the kind of millennia we're talking about between when these vivid details were given and when they actually came to pass. I mean, when you keep in mind how young our country is and how old when we see the pictures of George Washington appear, this is a prophecy that happened three times that amount of time. Plus, 1100 B.C., Samuel talking about David taking the throne, King David taking the throne, forecasts that through David, a greater David would come showing that Jesus would come as a man who would be a king, who would take the throne forever. 2 Samuel 7, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And he's clearly talking about someone beyond Solomon because the kingdom of Solomon wasn't forever. It, It divided shortly after him. He says in 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. Even giving a picture that this man would be king and he would pay a price. These particulars are starting to unfold 1,100 years before Christ actually comes. And of course, within the lifespan of Samuel is the prophet David. We don't usually think of David as a prophet, but he absolutely was. Any of the biblical writers were prophets. They were given the Holy Spirit so that they could pen and speak God's word. Sometimes it was forecasting, many times it was foretelling. But David wrote psalms replete with references to the coming of Christ. Psalm 2 is like this. Uh, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make the nations a footstool. He says it again in Psalm 110, something similar. Psalm 2, Psalm 16. But Psalm 22, that's the one that's most, most picturesque for seeing how Jesus would come. The words that Jesus used on the cross are the words penned in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, I, but I do not rest. 
Later in the same psalm, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. I mean, these are the exact descriptors for what the people who witnessed Jesus' crucifixion were doing. So we know that Jesus comes as a man. He comes as, uh, as a king, but he comes as a substitute, as a sacrifice. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. The words of the psalmist written a thousand years before Christ came are the same words spoken about Christ when he was on the cross. In the words from Jesus himself in Psalm 22, verse 17, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots, which Zechariah also pictures. Actually pictures the, the Roman soldiers casting dice over who gets Jesus' clothes. A thousand years. A thousand years. Now I know I will not convince an unbeliever to believe on the basis of this, although the Holy Spirit may. What I want you believers to hear is the Word of God is true. And the promises that are here that we see over and over and over, the promises yet to be fulfilled are going to come. They're going to happen. I love what the confession says on this point too. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did when the fullness of time was come. That's when the fullness of all his prophetic workings, his providence that brought it to come to pass. When the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin be conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so that two whole perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, the God-man. Without conversion, composition, or confusion. I mean, I can't describe that for you. It's mysterious. But the scripture makes uh, no misgivings about this God-man which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Think about how this had to have worked. Uh, the sin was committed by man, so the sin has to be paid for by man, but yet he can't be corrupted. So God, the, God takes on the form of flesh so he can bear our sins as a man, but give only what God could give, and that's his righteousness, the righteous requirement that he demanded. It means the only way we could be saved. He couldn't just create somebody without sin who was not also God and say, this is your representative. We don't relate. We have different parents. But through Mary and God in his miraculous way, safeguarding Jesus from sin, the God-man comes, and he is our sacrifice. This is not some sentimental plan someone thought about. Oh, look at Jesus, and you think about the details. It's worth thinking about. It's the only way we could be saved. And it's the way it was done, and we know it. And of course, there's no prophet. And you should know, among all people, having walked through this prophet for the last year and a half together, there's no prophet more vivid in his description of the coming of Christ and how he came than Isaiah. I love the last hymn that we'll sing. Isaiah, t'was foretold it, the rose I have in mind. With Mary we behold it, the virgin mother kind. To show God's love aright, she bore to men a Savior when half gone was the night. When things could be as bad as they could be, he sent our Savior. How did he come? This is told to us by the prophet Isaiah in many ways. In Isaiah 7, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive. He will be born of a virgin, no less, and bear a son. And she shall call his name Emmanuel. Wait a minute, that means God with us. This will be the God-man. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. And from our Advent candle reading and also our call to worship, for to us a child is born. This is how he'll come. He'll come born as a child, born of a virgin. He'll also be a king, but he'll be a substitute. He'll be a redeemer. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, these wonderful descriptives that can only picture for us Christ. He would come as a child, would become a man. When he grew up, he would bear a great burden, but he would be our wonderful counselor, a prophet of truth and wisdom. He wouldn't be just merely a man, he'd be the God-man, mighty God, and he'd be eternal, everlasting. He always was. He came as the Prince of Peace, bringing the war between man and God to an end for all those who are in him. Verse 7 in Isaiah 9, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord would, would do this. This is how Jesus would come. So many other Isaiah passages. But none are more important to us about how he came and what he did than Isaiah 53. Isaiah says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. This is how he came. And he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. It makes sense that he escaped the gaze of many. In fact, it says in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And even recognize him in many cases. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He must be cursed, he who is hanged on a tree. But, Isaiah makes this clear, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He came to bear our burdens, to bear our sins. And that's how he did it, by going to the cross. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. That's how he came. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. These are prophecies made 700 years before the coming of Christ in great and vivid detail. Zechariah gives similar prophecies. Other prophets speak likewise. He came as a man, the God-man, to bear our sins on the cross. When did Christ come? We'll focus upon this more next week. But for now, we should know that by what we've already seen, 
The prophets make predictions that could be verified by witnesses. When Jesus comes and does the things that they forecast, we know he has come. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior birth, says that great hymn. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Most people don't know those lyrics. They kind of mumble them, right? Long lay the world in sin and error pining. When did he come? When half spent was the night. When the world had lay long in sin and error pining. And then the, the prophet Micah, 600 years before he comes. I want you to think about this for a minute. 600 years. I mean, how many towns or cities do you know, and you don't know any in America, that are 600 years old? You know if you've studied any of European history that names change often in a 300-year period, let alone a 600-year period. 600 years before, Micah says, But to you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, never a, a town of much repute. There were some big things that happened there. We'll see that. But not a city of great repute or a strategic spot. Micah says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, the tribe from which Jesus comes, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth of is of old from ancient days. Of course, Hosea predicts, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Even we have prediction in the Old Testament of Jesus being born in Bethlehem, he goes to Egypt and is raised in Nazareth. And he presents himself in Jerusalem. These things are pointed out in particular. This is why Paul says in Galatians 4, the passage we had for our assurance of pardon, when the fullness of time had come. Those are important words in Scripture. When the fullness of time had come. When the sum total of the centuries of prophecy and providence that God had worked to come to this moment. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. This is not like I said, you know, at some point we're going to do X, Y, Z, and then I kind of wait, and I kind of wait, and I react. I'm like, okay, now it's time. That's not what it means here. E exactly the right time. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So he comes not only to save us from our sins, to, but to make us sons and daughters as well. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So one of the prophecies that helps us understand when it was that Christ was born is most vivid in the New Testament when the angel Gabriel says to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name is Joseph of the house of David, the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled, as we can understand. And tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, he's prophesying now, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be, a great, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Gabriel is lacing together multiple prophecies. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is when Jesus would come, born of Mary. 
some 2,000 years ago. In one of my favorite passages, it's brief but it's powerful, has Simeon, this old Jewish man who is there at the temple when the family brings Jesus, more likely as a toddler, to present him to the temple. This is one of the rites the Jews would go through. There was a man, this is in Luke 2, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Why was he waiting? Because he believed in the prophets of Advent. He believed what the prophets had written. He was waiting for the redemption or the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Now your servant can depart in peace, for he has seen the consolation of Israel. When did Jesus come? He came 2,000 years ago, born to the Virgin Mary, born in Bethlehem, lived in Palestine, died on the cross, and rose again. Now I want to close with the passage that I began with from 1 Peter 1, but I want to read more of that passage. Please listen as I read 1 Peter, excuse me, 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. The apostle writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, Peter writes, eyewitnesses of all that was fulfilled in Christ. Verse 17, 2 Peter 1, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So Christ had come. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, Peter writes. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed now to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So he was telling to the people of God, to you who know the prophets of Advent are true, knowing this, first of all, Peter writes, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along with the Holy Spirit, so writes the Apostle Peter. Steve Lawson, who summarized these, and I will finish with this. If you're wondering about the prophets of Advent, it only boils down to this, that he would be born of a virgin. He would be called Emmanuel, God with us. He would be born in Bethlehem. That great persons would come to adore him. There would be the killing of children in Bethlehem. This is predicted in the Old Testament. He would be called out of Egypt. He would be preceded by a forerunner named John the Baptist, we learn. He would be anointed with the Holy Spirit. He'd be a prophet like Moses, but a greater prophet still, a priest after the order of not just the Levites, but Melchizedek, all spelled out in the Old Testament. He would be entering into his public ministry uh, in Galilee. He would be entering into Jerusalem in particular, in the temple, just as Scripture predicts. He would live in poverty and meekness and tenderness and compassion, all outlined in the Old Testament. He would be without deceit. He'd be full of zeal, preaching with parables even. 
It even said the teaching style he would use. Uh, He would work miracles. He would bear reproach. He would be rejected by his own Jewish brethren. Can you imagine this, reading this in Isaiah's time? Why would we reject the Messiah? But they do. And it predicts this. The Jews and the Gentiles would be combined together against him. He would be betrayed by a friend, it even describes. His disciples would forsake him. He would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah spells it out. And at that price would be given a potter's field. He would die with intense suffering, yet be silent, as Isaiah forecasts under that suffering. He would be struck on the cheek, it even says. His, his personage would be marred. He would be spit upon and scarred. His hands and his feet would be nailed to the cross. He would be forsaken by God. He would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even a thousand years before, it spells out what he'll say on the cross. He would be mocked. Gall and vinegar would be offered to him. His garments would be parted. Lots would even be cast for his clothing, predicted a thousand years prior. He would be numbered among the transgressors. He would intercede for murderers. He would die, but not one bone on his body would be broken. It spells this out in Scripture. He would be pierced long before crucifixion ever was invented. The description of the persecution wasn't even in the minds of the people who wrote about it years before. He would be buried with the rich. His flesh would not see corruption. He would be raised from the dead. He would ascend back to the right hand of God the Father. Advent is a season to say, wow. Why did Christ come? He came to save us from our sins. To undo what the first Adam did. To break down the dividing wall of separation between us and God. How did Christ come? He came as a man. The God-man. To bear our sins on the cross. As a man like us. When did he come? He came 2,000 years ago to Bethlehem in Judea. He was hidden in Egypt for a time. He grew up in Nazareth. He ministered in Palestine. He died on the hill called the Skull, and he rose again in the third day for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for the prophets that you have called to give us your will and your word. As we begin another season of reflection on the coming of Jesus, help us not to lose focus of this miraculous redeeming act. There are so many things that can distract us at this time of the year. And there are many great things for which we give you thanks. But please, grant us a renewed and deep appreciation for your plan of redemption and its fulfillment over the centuries. Only you could have done such a thing as to have sent Christ like this. Thank you for your word and compel us to love and obey you in response. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.